It's a formula that actually works. It's how I got into this work. It's how dozens of my friends got into this work. And you are living proof that it can turn into a whole career if you get it right. Welcome back to Inorganic. My name's Christian Hasselt. I'm your host. And on today's episode, episode eight, we are going to talk about the absolute foundations of getting the M&A function started inside a SaaS company where number one, leadership team hasn't really done it before. And two, you don't have an M&A person in the building. What are the things that you need to be doing? The assumptions for this episode are a few foundational things that we won't talk about today, which is you're the CEO, CFO, co-founder. You've already decided you're going to do M&A. You've set aside some kind of a dollar and or stock allocation budget for M&A. Your board has given you permission to do M&A and has agreed with that, um, uh, that allocation that you might uh, intentionally assign to any kind of M&A. And your team has aligned that M&A makes the most sense. They may not be fully aligned, but they're like, yeah, this is interesting. We need to look into it. But now what do we do? That's the goal of the conversation in this episode. Joining me today is someone who literally got their shoulder tapped. They'll tell you about how they got their shoulder tapped, launched their career in corporate development. They've done it for 10 years, 12 deals under their belt, and a ton of learnings and experience. And they're going to lay out those foundations for this audience to really understand what are the things you need to do foundationally to just get the function up and running and figure out whether you're going to buy or partner or what you're going to do. So I'd like to now welcome my guest, Laurent Gut. He is the head of corporate development today at Octane. And Laurent, um, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Christian, privileged to be here and excited to uh, talk to some of your listeners. Awesome. Let's start with just a little bit of a background on yourself, uh, where you've been and, and what you're doing today. I have the privilege of leading corporate development for Octane, a Toma Bravo company built on e-commerce shipping. We own brands like ShipStation and Stamps.com. But my career didn't originate in M&A. I started general management and marketing, in fact, uh, grew through a number of companies and eventually found myself at public company Bizarre Voice. We were listed on the NASDAQ. I'd been there for about six years. And I was leading product strategy when my CEO, Gene, put a 15-minute meeting on my calendar on Friday afternoon. Being a fairly young person at the time, I was pretty nervous as to why I had a 15-minute meeting on a Friday afternoon with the CEO that had no agenda on it. You bring a box to that meeting. Everybody knows you bring a box to that meeting. That's what you do. That's right. I walk in with an empty cardboard box. And Gene says to me, not today, Lauren, someday, not today. It's like, I need you to turn around. There's six people on a video conferencing screen. This is pretty novel in 2016 in a way it's no longer novel. He's like, these are all the bankers who are going to help take our public company private. The board knows about it. I know about it. The CFO knows about it. Now you know about it. And uh, you start next week working on that. Make up a project over the weekend that can cover where you are and what you're doing for six months. Is there going to be in New York and San Francisco helping us take this company private? And this is how it starts. Uh, CEO decides, I want to be acquisitive. CEO decides, I want to divest something. There's no corporate yep. development inside of the house. And very right. frequently, rather than go hire someone who has the experience 
and start from scratch with a relationship with all the context on the business rather than, um, you know, going out and getting like outside help um, in terms of um, maybe a contractor. The CEO very frequently says, I'm going to go pick someone I trust who understands this company to help me solve this hairy problem because I think they can figure it out. And it's, it's a formula that actually works. It's how I got into this work. It's how dozens of my friends got into this work. And you are living proof that it can turn into a whole career if you get it right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a privilege to get chosen. I actually went in on Monday and said, Gene, I don't want to do it. Why'd you pick me? Um, and he, I remember two things he said to me. He said, Lauren, I like you because I ask you to do things and 97% of the time you do it. I said, thank you. I think that's a compliment. Uh, he said, here in this job, I'm going to like you even though 97% of what you work on winds up in the paper shredder. And I still think about that all the time. Um, and I said, you know, secondarily, it's going to be weird if the CFO and I go around asking too many questions. So your role in product strategy lets you go ask for a lot of data, lets you go engage with the team in a different way than I as the CEO or CFO of a public could go talk to my team. Yeah, that was, that's a great story. Um, really great context on how you got into where you are 12 deals later, probably many multiples of deals that you've looked at um, over over your um, 10-year career in corporate development. Um, so this is why I'm really excited to have you on. I, as I had framed earlier, you know, I think uh, in another episode I talked about, I, I believe that we are going to get into a market where there's going to be a lot more M&A between SaaS companies of all different sizes, $30 million company, 30 million ARR companies buying 3 million ARR companies, 50 million ARR, 60, 100, 10 million ARR companies doing aqua hire. There's, there's, there's just way too many companies out there that are going to run out of funding or are going to need another shot at life, as I say. And um, if you're a founder CEO who says, you know, I really do think that I should be acquisitive and I, I know I have permission from the board. I know my team's aligned around it, but I don't know what to do next. What's the, what's the playbook? So it, what I want to do is, you know, work with me together on kind of helping build out sort of the foundations of, um, you know, what are the marching orders? So I think the first question I have, Laurent, is what is the team that you need to have around the table that's going to help develop the inorganic strategy? Who are the players? In each case, both in my full-time roles and in some advisory, I've built teams from there was no corporate development person to now there's a team. I think it's fair to say the minimum team is probably your M&A leader. And that can be a title of various levels, depending on what you're starting from. And a project manager type, someone who's particularly good at process and Gantt charts. That person will be useful on the front end to organize some of the M&A work for your leader. And they'll be very useful on the back end to integrate some of that work for your leader. I generally think of M&A as having three big chunks. There's kind of the strategy and who should we buy and what's the value proposition chunk. Then there's the running the process chunk, calling the banker, calling the other company, running the deal, doing some spreadsheets about value, et cetera. And then there's integrating that company and their culture. I'm sure there'll be good episodes on that here in the future. Yeah. But um, I find it rare that you can find somebody who is 10 out of 10 on all three. Mm -hmm. 
And usually a good dividing line is to have the strategist process M&A leader and the process runner um, as a minimum team. Yeah, I think I think that's actually a really important point, which is um, when you're when you're running Scrappy, there is a desire to you you know make someone do this as a part time job or kind of stack all of the responsibility on one person. And I like what you're describing, which mm-hmm. is look you. You need a person to do the job, and then you need someone to help project manage. And you are in a good place, even if the project manager is the part-time project manager, um, because that can obviously be a job that does other things. It needs to be there. For the person that is going to be the M&A lead in the company, when they don't have that background, what are the traits the CEO should be looking for you know, they have plenty of people around the house they probably trust, but what are the traits that they need to be looking for for a person who's going to take point on such an important thing? I often find, and when I select for team members, it'll be a amount of intellectual curiosity to go learn about new businesses. I often find there are people who are deep experts in your business, but they either have a visceral anti-reaction to another business or things not being done here. And you want somebody who's kind of fascinated by life outside of your own four walls, potentially somebody who's regularly bringing you strategy papers or business ideas or coming back from conferences with lots of great input. That generally will make them open to understanding the strengths and the flaws of the other businesses that they're asked to evaluate. And secondarily, I love finding those leaders who are really great on a whiteboard with the other C-suite executives, somebody who can kind of diagram a business, think through how it integrates into the workflow with the product guy one day, think how to interface the business with the finance team the next day, think how to work on that with the marketing team on a third day, and somebody who understands your business well enough to hold those conversations with the rest of your C-suite. Um, really in front of a whiteboard is how I imagine that person flexible enough to understand. Yeah, I think the the other quality I might add is um, you can be a lot of those things, but you need to be able to bring other people along with you. This is a right. this is a in 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 a way it's a a, a sales job in that you are yes. a lot of times personally getting convicted that something makes sense but also being able to influence others that something makes sense. Because when it comes to, you know, actually getting a deal to a point where you're like, this is the right deal for us, there's there's always um, uh, someone who's bullish and there's always someone who's a skeptic. And you kind of have to be the mitigator of the different opinions. But at the end of the day, if you think it's the right thing, if you think this is the right deal, you do have to take that champion position, but be able to bring those key people along with you um, uh, to get it to the right outcome. Really building up the relationship too, especially with the product team and the sales team. I've generally had boards say, if you can walk in with your sales leader on your left arm and your product leader on your right arm, I know you're doing the right thing. You know, when there's a lot of disagreement as between those teams as to whether we should get a deal done, the back hall chatter is, I don't know if I can tell this as well as Lauren thinks I can sell it. Um, that's how deals die at the board level. Yeah. So the summary is the team is whoever you're going to have as the M&A lead, someone who's helping project manage. And then I think the other point is 
you definitely need sales and product to be partners uh, and, and invested in, in the process. They are, they're your, uh, your, your kind of the people who are really in, informing and advising on, I can sell this, this fits. Now that leads to this question of how do you decide build, build by partner? I think um, most CEOs say, I know who my competition is. I know what the landscape is, but I don't really know how to map out where I should um, choose to partner and where I should choose to invest in organically. In your experience, what is the most effective way to kind of build out that picture and help the CEO and product figure that out? Yeah. I've often found any business worth building your way into, somebody else in the world is already working on that. And so if it was you know, such a brilliant idea that your internal build team had come up with, odds are someone in some part of the ecosystem has started working a phase of that problem. They may be earlier, they may be smaller, but that both proves a certain amount of product market fit for the idea and leads to this question of, for this new concept, this new expansion, should we build something that already exists in the market? Should we partner with the person who's doing that thing that already exists in the market? Or should we buy something that already exists in the market? My process has generally been to think about it in a fairly atomic industry here at Octane. Those are currently things like inventory management and drop shipping, pretty important to the e-commerce ecosystem. There are businesses that are doing that today. Yeah. And we'll begin with one page overview of the market landscape, like how many companies are in this space, how much do I believe that industry is growing, who are some of the major players in that space. And then my next chess move will be spending time with the product and engineering team, talking about what it would really take to build that capability, mm -hmm. and then comparing that investment with what it would be to buy, or what we think the reasonable economics would be if we were to partner with a business. I mean, the other um, the other kind of framework to think about here is what are the basic strategic levers for any business? If I I just got back from the Deloitte M and A summit a few weeks ago, so fresh in my mind is: um, Are you adding new capability? Are you consolidating mm -hmm. the market? Are you expanding your base of customer from one type of Sam to another type of Sam? Or are you expanding geographically through these investments? So part of it, I think, is uh, looking at the tool sets in the market. And part of it is looking at what acquisition of those tool sets brings you to make the, the business bigger. Yeah. Ideally, those high-level areas of are we acquiring for technical capability or geographic expansion, et cetera, in a bigger company will often be set by the multi-year strategic plan or in the private equity world, the value creation plan, where you're really thinking through two, three years in the future and maybe even one, two, three acquisitions down the road. If you can kind of daisy chain together a handful of acquisitions that are all on a theme. It can both help you from a market positioning and a storyline telling mm. perspective at the future transaction for your business. Um, and so therefore, often some of the build by partner questions that we have are interlinked with later decisions so that we say in this general cluster, we're gonna build a bunch of stuff. 
in this general cluster, we're going to buy a bunch of stuff. And then usually last in this in this cluster, we'll partner for where those other two things are not true. I think one of the uh, subtext uh, things in, in SaaS is um, build or buy and um, drawing tenants around what are the things that a company should be building? Because a lot of times what I've seen CEOs do is say, I've seen that company, I can build it. I've seen that company, I can build it. That's what they've got is junk there. The question is, how does a CEO, how should a CEO be thinking about what they should build versus what they should buy? How have you navigated that? Yeah. In many cases, we would start with a small build. At Bizarre Voice, we had text-based ratings and reviews, and a logical extension of that was photo reviews. Mm -hmm. And so the very first move that we had was building a capability for someone to upload a photo alongside a review. But then we found that that became fairly complex fairly quickly. We had to moderate those photos, that is make sure that everything in the photograph was appropriate. We had to product tag those photos. Uh, we had to come up with standards by which we could share those photos to retailers like Walmart, Target. We then uh, came to the realization that we needed to go many steps ahead on technology. So one of the first deals I worked on was Feed Magnet, um, which became Bizarre Voice Curations. Mm-hmm. In fact, even five years later, we would say even that technical skill set wasn't enough, and we would go to the market to go buy another company called Curalate in that space. Mm-hmm. And that was in part because once you get into the market, especially as a market leader, so if you're a CEO of a market leading business, the expectations for you to add features, add support, add analytics, add service, really do start adding up in the build environment. And ultimately, those teams move from your one product manager and two or three pretty good engineers to a fairly sizable team. And that's ultimately one of the questions that you face is, am I building this because I'm kind of pot committed to being a leader in business number two, the way I'm a a leader in business number one? I think one of the tenets this leads to is when you're trying to make that build by decision making, some of the interim steps you can make can be a a partner leading to a buy. So you were talking about a scenario where you are internally saying, well, let's just build and see like what this looks like. You could simultaneously be doing A-B testing and partnering with a company you think is a potential target, but you want to just sort of prove out, you know, put put the two cars next to, no, next to one another and see which one goes faster and which thesis proves out. That is, um, in my experience, a worthwhile approach. Has it worked for you? It has. In fact, the speed magnet deal... We invited their engineering team to a hackathon months, maybe even a year before that deal got done. And it was a great way to look at how would our two teams work together on some code? How would our two teams uh, work together culturally? And being able to demonstrate that to the leadership and to the board was one of the reasons that deal got done. That began as a partnership and uh, then it went technical and then it became an acquisition. I think that's a great lesson for your you know, first time acquiring CEOs is, um, you know, there are some scenarios where deal time process time is going to be compressed because the company you're examining, it's they need to go through a sale process. Um, but usually those are if their time is compressed, uh, very often the terms may be a little bit more in your favor. But if you're making a bigger bet, 
and you really want to get convicted, that's a good bet. I, I love the idea of, of hackathon. I like the other idea of just standing up a straight up partnership and um, you know, doing some light integration or some light joint GTM to see if you can get the cultures of the company to work together. And I think the other thing is, is can do customers get, you know, um, one plus one is three X the value um, from the combination of the businesses. Uh, that's that's a great way to test it when you're building out the that kind of going back to the, the market map, if you will. Um, I think something I've seen is there's just a little bit too much insular thinking around the view of the world. Um, it's, it's often because your the business is so expert and so granularly into the product side of the problem. You sometimes lose track of like the outside in, what are the levers you pull to help the business sort of check, you know, compartmentalized thinking that may be just a little bit too boxed in. Yeah. One selection criteria that CEO could also think about when nominating someone to lead M&A is somebody who loves going out with the sales team. Um, I love every Uber ride, lobby, waiting for a customer visit with my sales team, because then you're hearing from the customer, the person who's eventually going to have to find this one plus one equals three value, what they are shopping for. I've also found customers to be great sources of M&A pipeline, to ask some of your customer advisory board, uh, ask some of the partner, your customers who are great partners to you. What other technologies are you using? You know, what problems do you think you'll have in a year or two? And who are you testing out to start working on that? Many, many of my deals have come kind of customer originated uh, rather than internally originated. I think that's one way to start looking outside your four walls is get in front of customers, ask a lot of questions, ask specifically about what technologies they're trialing or testing and what they're excited about. I think a second way is to have your M&A leader invest time in some of the ecosystem around your business, the tech stars or similar events that come through your town, um, just to meet people talk to other M&A leaders, like how Christian and I have met many of the same people, is largely through vectors like that, if it's not you know, doing a deal directly. And uh, those are some great ways for the leader to go through that. I think internally, one of the mindsets I encourage my CEOs to establish is, you know, we know that our business is not perfect, right? Every CEO, if they were honest with themselves, says, I've got challenges and opportunities. And so often when you're looking at a business, it is a good thing for the detractor to look for the flaws in that business. But hey, you know, thinking no business is as perfect as us is often one of the pieces of thinking I try to beat out of the organization. Uh, it's often just that their business model causes them to make different choices or you know, their problems and opportunities have caused them to make different decisions about how the organization is structured or how they go to market. So I think some of that openness driven by customer feedback and ecosystem feedback, and then recognizing that what may seem like a difference or a flaw in the other company is largely probably a choice driven by some externality that they're working through. What's your view on using expert networks as a source of kind of getting a uh, not necessarily anonymized, but just an outside yeah. perspective where 
um, there's a lower potential for bias. A lot of times when we're interviewing our customers directly, even when prompted not to, they tend to tell us what they think they want to hear, or there are biases that are established if they're, they're facing you kind of in a, in that kind of customer context, expert networks or other things you might utilize to kind of remove bias. What are those tools? Early, I use our Gong instance. So if you have a call recording software, I'd encourage your M&A leader to get really familiar with it and dig into it. I have the privilege of 100,000 recorded telephone calls that are text searchable. So one of my first chess moves will be any company that's named, I'll go in and listen to the dozens, sometimes hundreds of calls where that company was named entirely unprompted by anybody without any pretense. And um, I will pull recording clips from Gong into my internal pitch meetings to say, here's what our customers are saying about this company when nobody knew that they were listening in this context. Sometimes, candidly, that's very positive and it's caused me to move deals faster. Yeah. Sometimes it's caused me to kill deals right there. Wow. Later process, I would say um, expert networks are almost a required flow at least in the Tomo Bravo and Vista ecosystems yeah. that I'm the most familiar with yeah. as an expectation at the investment committee level. Um, and for the CEO listening to this podcast, I think it kind of depends on that. I would spend some time with your board or your board chair asking when my M&A leader comes in, talk with me about the proof points you want to see before we green light a deal and uh, make sure that that's pretty clear across the team. I might say for the CEO standing up this function, one great gift you can give your new M&A leader is to spend time with your board or your board chair and get clarity on what they're expecting to see when that M&A leader brings a deal forward uh, as to preparation for the deal, yep. potentially sharing a prior deck or sharing some other material that that board has used to make decisions. Yeah. So what you were talking about leads into uh, another question, which is, how to utilize the resources of your financial sponsors, what, how, to, how to use the resources of their teams to help support your process. What are the ways that you can do that? Yeah. I've long benefited by having great associates, senior associates inside the PE firms that I've worked with who become an extension of the internal team. Often, Three early chess moves I'd encourage this new M&A leader to make would be to collaborate on the financial model that the team will want to see. Often they've built the long-term financial model for a portfolio company and can build a logical model that extends upon it. I think a second is to leverage the operating history that that business has had. Um, sorry, the operating Second, it's useful to leverage some of the operating history that that private equity or venture capital firm has had historically. Often they've held conversations and have a generally good sense of the market map. And then third is obviously the introductions that they can make to experts, to founders in the space. Uh, most of my deals have been proprietary deals where we've built a relationship over a long period of time with the CEO or CFO in a business that we eventually had our eyes on transacting with. And many of those initial introductions came either from the financial sponsor or from bankers that they knew and could use to get us the introductions we needed. Yeah, I think um, the, the thing that I want to emphasize about what you just said is um, 
I don't think most CEOs would make this uh, would make this bias, but uh, financial modeling uh, is not necessarily a commodity, but there are plenty of places to get someone who can do financial modeling. Your M&A lead should know how to navigate their way around a spreadsheet and they should be able to read financial statements, but financial modeling can be done by plenty of people, including your investors. So that's one thing to get from them. The one thing that I love getting from investors is access to resources that cost a lot in scale to resource. Yep. And as an example is, hey, I, I need detail on a pitch book profile. A pitch book subscription is $25,000 a year. Um, if I just need one profile for a particular target where I need to understand cap table dynamics, an investor is usually very willing to share that. They are not going to share passwords. They're not going to do this in scale because they have to be careful about that. Um, number two yep. is um, expert networks actually cost a lot to subscribe to. And I found that um, most times investors are willing to help set up and also um, run those expert network calls for you at the right time if you're trying to do diligence on a target. And those are two very tangible, valuable things that not only um, are, are a resource, but it also helps bring your financial sponsors along because when their associates are running the expert calls, they're abstracting from the calls independently, the green signals, the yellow signals, and the red signals, it puts them in a position to get much more convicted about the opportunity you're evaluating and just adds an extra, you know, a little bit of a layer of independent um, thinking uh, on your own internally built thesis. Agree. I found uh, bankers can also be great sources of the one pitch book profile. And so if you built a relationship with some of the investment banks, they can often uh, give you access to a little bit at a time. Also, often they'll have some amount of proprietary knowledge of that business from industry conferences that they attend, other conversations that they have in the space. That's a great group to cultivate the relationship with as well. Yeah. Laurent, you made uh, such a critical point. Uh, Gong and Chorus are M&A practitioner gold. If it is, if you listen to podcasts, you need to 3X your listening of Chorus uh, everybody in my company knows that I'm the resident chorus stalker. I love li listening to internal calls. I love listening to customer calls. They are so valuable to help understand and reinforce some of the thinking you have around our thesis and where we have opportunities inside of the business. And I found that, you know, it, it takes an extraordinary investment of time um, to really follow through all of these things. But, you know, when I go running, when I go driving to the gym, I've, I'm listening to Chorus. Um, I've heard really great things about Gong as a platform as well. But you now I double down on, you know, in the ability to independently gather data about the business from places where are not obvious um, gives you an incredible amount of power in terms of being able to stand toe to toe with your peers and understanding the dynamics of the business. That is to say, you know, you're not one of the, the frontline facing sales reps, but you're, you're able to actually put your ear to the ground and hear what they're hearing. You're not in product, but you know what you're getting the voice of the customer and you're, you know, a part of it. We record a lot of our internal meetings. So I'm able to hear what our product team is talking about and what challenges they're encountering. It helps build an entire database and muscle around, um, you know, a more complete understanding of the business and puts us in a position when 
at the most opportune moments to really, um, you know, draw references to things that are happening real time in the business and use that as factual foundation for why we should or shouldn't invest in an inorganic opportunity. So, Laurent, last thing I wanted to ask you about before we wrap up the episode is just what are the lessons from the road? If you're, you know, first time in the role, uh, it's a M&A inexperienced team. What are the two or three learnings over your 10-year career in M&A that you abstract uh, the, like the lookouts? Let's avoid these pitfalls. Yeah, three come to mind. One, I would have, should have done pre-gaming around M&A integration with my leadership team sooner um, to sit down with everybody and their biases from whatever companies they've come from in the past about how M&A integration should be done, how they and their team should be involved, building out the shell of a framework, a playbook for what an M&A integration will look like before you're in a live fire environment is a great investment of time. So grab a playbook from someone somewhere, start running it through your team, maybe even have them sit down and uh, imagine who would be involved when they have a deal done in the future. I think a second thing that I love as a practice that uh, Nick Beta at Gainsight encouraged us to do was to split the leadership team into a red team and a green team on every M&A deal that we looked at and had half the management team intentionally argue against why we should do this. And if we could still walk out of that meeting with conviction, as we did in the two deals I got done there, um, then you knew that you had a great deal when and you could go to your investment committee and you could go to your board with confidence because you had red teamed many of the questions already. And the last point that I love is celebrating a failed deal. Um, I had a deal we worked on very hard at Gainsight and the day fell apart. Nick Beta called a Zoom happy hour. It was COVID, but we all got together. We did a happy hour. We gave everybody a bunch of attaboys for the works that they had done to get us to that point. And then we said, you know, we all made the right decision and didn't, you know, move forward with this particular deal. That's no reason not to celebrate everybody's work. Those are three. I mean, those are right on. That's um, that's awesome, Laurent. Like, I love the point about integration. We'll have a, a several episodes on integration forthcoming. So that's great. I also really like the red team, green team. That um, is something I've heard, but not have been able to actually run myself. So I think it'd be great almost have an episode just on how to do a red team, green team effectively inside of a smaller company. Like, how do you remove those biases? Mm -hmm. So those are some um, really great insights. Well, Laurent, it's really been great having you on. There's um, some super valuable insights. We've talked about what's the right kind of uh, point person to run the M&A process, What's the right way to think about build, buy, and partner, and kind of how to test um, those buy and partner scenarios? Um, and we've talked about how to bring your investors in and engage them as a resource, as a part of the process, and how to de risk insular thinking inside of the organization, how to go outside and kind of really um, check some of um, institutional knowledge against what might be happening in the market. And then I love your, your insights on potential pitfalls to avoid. Laurent, it's been great having you on. Thanks for joining us here on Inorganic. Christian, thanks for your service to this uh, ecosystem and community, and I'm looking forward to more ahead. All right. Thanks again, Laurent. It was great having you on. And to you, my listeners, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Inorganic. 
If you enjoyed today's conversation, please help me out by giving it a like, a subscribe, or sharing this episode with someone you think who might enjoy the content. We are all a part of a community trying to make uh, the inorganic growth space around the SaaS ecosystem better and better every day. Thanks so much for joining. And until next time, I'll see you.